Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Before we dive into the show today, I've got some exciting news to share. Hub and Spoke is growing. This month, we brought a new show into the collective. And if you like Soonish, I know you're going to like The Constant. It's a really fun and engaging show about the human side of science and how common it is for scientists to get things wrong. The show is made by Mark Chrysler, who lives in Chicago and is also a playwright. And Mark's goal isn't to make fun of scientists. Not at all. Instead, I think he's trying to show how scientists are just people who make mistakes and get led astray by their own beliefs and biases, just like everyone else. And how, when you think about it, it's actually kind of amazing that science still works as well as it does, and that in the long run we do learn how to ask better questions and get less wrong answers. In his latest episode, Mark argues that if there's going to be a patron saint of wrongness, it should be Douglas Corrigan, better known as Wrong Way Corrigan. He's the pilot who gave new meaning to the phrase air quotes by accidentally flying solo across the Atlantic in 1938. What makes July 17th so holy in the constant calendar? It's the anniversary of either one of the greatest adventures or misadventures of all time. It's hard to say for sure which, as I like it. It's been 81 years since a single-engine Curtis Robin took off from Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn on an amazing journey that captured the attention of people throughout the world. An amazing journey that was never supposed to happen. We couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Mark into Hub and Spoke, and I hope you'll check out that episode and the entire Constant Archive at constantpodcast.com. Okay, on with the show. The future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Rausch. President Trump used Twitter to blast several Democratic congresswomen of color for criticizing the United States and being what he called un-American. He wrote it down. It's on his Twitter feed. He said the countries you came from. Facebook and Instagram banned conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Jones's talk show is a Facebook page where he's repeatedly said the Newtown School shooting was staged. The problem, Chaz Lowe says, lies in YouTube's algorithm. Is YouTube basically recommending all of us videos just to keep us hooked? This comes after a gunman who killed 50 people at two mosques in New Zealand live streamed the shootings on Facebook. Facebook took it down only after being contacted by officials in New Zealand, but then other users kept reposting that video on Facebook as well as on YouTube and Twitter. It took just seconds for this Instagram live stream to go from dangerous to deadly. In a series of tweets, Darla Shine claimed without evidence that childhood diseases such as measles keep you healthy. The company has faced intense criticism in recent years for not doing enough to curb hate speech and misinformation. After last Saturday's synagogue shooting near San Diego, white supremacists gathered on a Facebook page linked to the alleged shooter to express support. It's one of the biggest and, in a way, one of the most surprising technology stories of the last three years. Social media, a set of tools that was supposed to give everyone a voice and bring us together around shared ideas, has turned out to be way more effective at doing just the opposite. Sowing division, doubt, 
discord and distrust. If you listened to the March 2019 episode of Soonish, you heard me place a lot of the blame for this development on one company and one CEO, namely Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. And there is plenty to criticize about Facebook, especially the way its surveillance capitalism business model gives everyone from political campaigns to state-sponsored hackers a way to mess with our democratic process by targeting specific groups with inflammatory ads and posts. I may even have called Facebook the Ford Pinto of the internet in a reference to the 1970s hatchback with a fatal engineering flaw that caused it to explode in rear-end collisions. But the story of how social media technology is backfiring on us was never just about Facebook. And today, I want to bring you a conversation that I taped on stage recently with two remarkable people who've been longtime observers of the whole social media sphere and who have some concrete ideas about what's most broken and what we can do to fix it. This interview happened in July 2019 at an event at the MIT Media Lab called Net at 50. It was a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the creation of the ARPANET, the precursor to today's internet. And it was co-organized by the World Frontiers Forum and the technology news site, Exconomy, where I used to work as an editor. The theme of this segment was how to fix social media. And the first speaker you'll hear is Juliette Kayem. She's a national security expert who teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and who served as Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs in the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. The second speaker is Rafi Krikorian. Rafi helped invent the idea of the Internet of Things as a grad student at the MIT Media Lab and he went on to work as an engineer at Twitter in its early days. And now Rafi is managing director at Emerson Collective, the philanthropic and social change organization started by Steve Jobs' widow, Lorene Powell Jobs. So, Juliet, and then Rafi, I'd like to ask you first to tell us a bit more about what you're up to now, and maybe as you fill us in on your professional biographies, weave in a little bit about how you came to be interested in this big question we're asking of what can we, what happened to social media and what can we do to fix it? Okay, well thank you. I, we were saying that we feel like we're the buzz of the, of the day, the visionary day, uh, but I never thought that Peter Gabriel would be the opening act, so I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I, um, I come from this from the perspective of a background in counterterrorism and national security. I served on the National Commission on Terrorism, have spent a career in counterterrorism and then more generally homeland security, basically risk reduction, building defenses. Um, I'm on the faculty of a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. That's when I actually started thinking about policy work around um, these issues. Essentially, um, the security is actually the easy part. Security is, you know, build a wall. Don't have a, don't have a Boston Marathon. That's the easy part. The challenge is how do you promote secure flow of people, goods, ideas, and networks? That's how a sophisticated understanding of what security is is today. Um, Because you have to promote that flow, but it has to be secure. I'm interested in this issue um, in terms of fixing social media. Um, While the privacy concerns um, are um, important, while the fake news and and, uh, fake information is important, um, I'm really concerned about the radicalization issue, especially coming from counterterrorism, and a lot less so on the ISIS side, but the white supremacist side. Um, so what you're seeing today that's different than, say, when I got into counterterrorism in 95, right? So uh, Al-Qaeda, a very, very um, small 
targeted group of men. All of them had, um, had you know, fought in the Afghan war. They all had to vow directly to bin Laden. It was a limited number of people, um, and they didn't trust anyone else. Um, the radicalization that you're seeing now has three components, all aided by social media. One is, of course, this idea that um, it's like a distributed, it's a, it's a displacement hatred. It it's doesn't have to do with, um, you know, the, oh, I don't like the African-American couple that moved in next door. It's actually a sense, and you see it in a lot of the stuff today, that the fact that the African-American couple moved in next door displaces my presence, right? This otherness that we're seeing play out on Twitter now. The second aspect that's different in radicalization now is, of course, social media and the extent to which the guy sitting alone who has these horrible thoughts is able to find a community or a network. Um, to radicalize and, you know, to give a sense of community for that anger and therefore the violence. And then the third, of course, is a public discourse, and I don't, I, I, why am I apologizing for being political? A public discourse that does not condemn uh, this racism, in fact, condones it and promotes it so that there's not a shamefulness, right? I'm not so naive to believe that racism is going to die in my lifetime, that anti-Semitism is going to die in my lifetime, but I would like it to be shamed, right? I want these people to go back inside. Um, and that combination, all aided by social media, is why I've gotten into this space. That was a long answer, but just basically, it's all horrible. No, I'm joking. <laughs> That's a lot to follow. I, <laughs> um, I mean, for me, like like we mentioned, I think like when I actually left uh, the when I left the Boston area and moved to San Francisco, I actually joined what was then a pretty small company called Twitter, um, and working on building out their infrastructure at the time. So Twitter, my job really was to get rid of the fail whale, do whatever we could, make sure Twitter could scale, Twitter could be reliable, Twitter could go everywhere in the world. Uh, but like the things that we like to talk about, this was the time of Arab Spring. We like to talk about revolutions where we're, we're coming forth because people could just talk to each other. Like the metaphor we really like to use was it was kind of like a flattening of the landscape. You could see everyone, you could talk to everyone, access was being enabled. In fact, a lot of the side projects my team would work on where we would be in communication with Chinese dissidents trying to figure out how to still get them access to Twitter through the firewall. So like whenever someone found a hole, we would try to figure out how to make Twitter accessible via that hole for people who wanted to go use it. Um, but then, and, you know, I went off and did other stuff uh, along the way. And then come inauguration day of 2017, uh, when I actually had the visceral understanding of how social media was sort of used against uh, a lot of people, I sort of took... I actually networked my way and tried to find my way into the Democratic National Committee to really actually go to hand-to-hand -hand combat on how to, how to change the discourse, how to change the way we use social media and change the way that we sort of talk about it. And, you know, in the political sense, I'll have to go political as well, so I apologize, but in the political sense, you're sort of like faced on two aspects of it. On one hand, you want to use this new mechanism in order to reach and talk to people. Like, I ran a massive study in the, in the Alabama special election for a senator to really understand the impact of social media to get out the vote. And it turns out it's a lot. Like you, you actually have to go do it. We ran a randomized controlled trial against the entire state of Alabama. We excluded a, person, a portion of Alabama, never talked to them on social media. And we used the other, and we talked to about two thirds of the rest of the, the Democratic leaning population to try to get them to go out and vote for now Senator Doug Jones. Um, and it turns out a decent percentage of them actually went out to vote because they saw our messages on social media. So on one end, you're trying to use this to our advantage, but on the other side, you're dealing with the fact 
that you know a lot of people went to the polls on the wrong day because they saw an advertisement saying that the wrong Tuesday was election day. And it was a purposely put advertisement out there, but they, you know, we as people don't have any mechanisms to understand what's true, what's not true when it's coming through like this like accelerated medium. I think like one of the things that like a person-to-person communication or to a room, you know, there's built-in friction involved, right? There's only a certain number of people I can talk to at one time. Um, and you know, technology has of course lessened that friction, but you can almost think that like social media has become like an accelerant in some way, in a way that like we as people don't have the built-in mechanisms. Evolution hasn't taught us how to deal with this type of like social accelerant in a lot of ways. Thanks. Well, to get political, why not? Um, let's, let's just be a little bit, let's apply a little self-examination. I'm feeling like I'm as worked up about these issues as you are. And, and I also date that to Inauguration Day 2017 or maybe November 8th, 2016. But let's wind the clock back a little farther. Weren't a lot of these problems quite evident before that? Um, Rafi, you've been dealing with bad actors and, and potential misuse of platforms like Twitter since you started in this field, right? Um, Juliet, you've been looking at national security issues and how radicalization is abetted by platforms. This all started a long time ago, and it's not a product of the Trump era. Shouldn't we have noticed this? um, Shouldn't we liberals have noticed this sooner? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, we did. I mean, the radicalization process that we were looking at with ISIS certainly was that. It was, you know, we had major attacks by ISIS in this country. They weren't 9-11 magnitude, but you certainly, you know, you had the Pulse nightclub and other instances where men are alone in rooms and getting radicalized online. They've never been to Afghanistan or Syria or any of these places. Uh, So we certainly knew how uh, platforms were being utilized. I think the accelerant aspect of it um, has even changed in just five years. The understanding by those of us, I don't work in government anymore, but those of us who study this, the understanding that the platform platforms um, are um, know to how to say the right things but are not 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 changing their algorithms in response to the right things and if you want a better example it's New Zealand um, you know you you can uh, you, you, that it takes 17 or 18 minutes to bring down uh, a live feed on Facebook of a man who is killing people. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a technology person, but I've got a couple data points to help. But what if you, the, you know, the sound of bullets, people standing who are now falling, you know, people screaming. That seems to me like a series of, you know, uh, data points that would uh, should alert someone that something is going terribly wrong. So I do think it has changed. And then just back to the point of the. Of the public space, I mean, think of social media as, as, as just reflective of a public space, and our tolerance on the public in the public domain um, is has changed, right? I mean, it's just it's acceptable to say certain things, and when it's acceptable to say it at the, in the public sphere, it is certainly uh, going to be harder to bring it down in social media, and it's going to be harder to. As I said, there's something about shame. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, no one's embarrassed to have these horrible thoughts anymore. I'd like them to be embarrassed again. But I think also, you know, one of the things that sort of like a free society sort of values is the fact that you have to be confronted with oppositional opinion. Like that's one thing that you should go do. Um, and one of the things that's really rapid has changed in like the social media landscape, you know, autoplay on YouTube might be one of the most dangerous features on the planet in the grand scheme of things, right? Because like all, what autoplay on YouTube does and what a lot of the social media platforms also do is they send you down a rabbit hole of, of things that are sort of like are driven by your particular engagement. And because we've created these systems 
systems that are driven by your engagement and trying to figure out how to juice that engagement, um, you've created this potential radicalization like uh, pathways to go through to go through our network. So like we're no longer in an environment, at least online, where you're forced to see oppositional opinion. And when you do, you're immediately set up to like absolutely hate it. So therefore, go back to your own camp. So you're not you're no longer maybe to put a finer point on it. You're no longer forced to see moderate oppositional opinion that you could then like have a discourse about because that's just not what these platforms are set up to do. Right. Okay. Well, we've gotten a lot out there already in this in the last eight minutes about yeah. the toxicity of these platforms. <laughs> you just touched on something that I think is fascinating. There's a kind of a tension right now uh, when we start thinking about solutions to these problems between micro sort of technical solutions. Like, for example, there have been people who have talked about the idea of just turning off the YouTube next play recommendation algorithm in certain cases um, to tamp down that kind of. Um, and then there are examples like Pinterest, which figured out that the easiest way to get rid of anti-vaxxer misinformation on Pinterest was to just make it impossible to search for that topic on Pinterest. Simplest thing in the world. That sounds encouraging from one perspective, but I, I also wonder whether those kinds of solutions can really scale and help us to fix the deepest problems on these platforms, which have to do with the deliberate way the platforms rile us up in order to get us to spend more time on the platforms in order to see more ads. Okay, is that a fixable problem? Yeah, I mean, like the, your Pinterest example is exactly my point on adding friction, right? So, like, you know, I made this comment at some conference a few a uh, few months ago that one of the biggest changes a social media company can do is just to figure out how to like dampen virality, just basically slow it down, make it more comprehensible to people, give them a, a chance to process it. Like, if you just even look at some pure statistics online, like you know, vast majority of people don't post content, they only read content, but those people who, who do read, like a lot of them have found like these frictionless ways to engage, like sharing or retweeting or something that doesn't actually require you to add information. You're just sort of like, again, juicing some algorithm in the process. I think like, I think this is like a multifold problem, obviously. Like no one, there is no one silver bullet to go on here. Like one, on one hand, you have sort of like the economic incentives. So like even when like Facebook is fined for potentially messing up our democracy, their stock price goes up, right? So like the economic incentives are clearly broken uh, here. But at the same time, like in government, we don't have people can have intelligent conversations about this. I'm, I'll go back to Facebook again because I actually attempted to help prep people for these conversations with, with Mark Zuckerberg. But like it's clear legislators don't understand the technology we're dealing with anymore, so they can't hold a check and balance accountable. And then finally, um, there are local voices that are really important that are not being represented in the governance of these of these uh, platforms. Like these platforms are governed, you know, back from where I'm now from, with like in, in like a Silicon Valley office somewhere, you know, granted with thousands or so people. Um, but they're not diverse groups of people. They're not representing everyone's opinions. They don't represent all the opinions internationally. They don't even represent all the opinions domestically inside just Palo Alto. So like, it's, there's like so many things here that are set up to fail and setting up and figuring out the fixes to one of them is not, not the answer. You have to actually fix the entire system there. Juliet, where do you suspect the answers are? What level? Uh, I, I think it's a combination. I mean, I think of, of um, you know, the market driving certain behavior, people getting, you know, people getting off these platforms would drive some behavior so the companies actually become responsive. But I do think there's a role for legislation. Um, and I think um, the failure to legislate is, is giving these social media platforms their own legislative ability, right? I mean, I think one of the geniuses of what 
like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg were able to do for many years is to convince us that they had no agency, right? As you realize, actually, that convincing is agency, right? Because you actually do have a capacity to, to, to figure out what the algorithms are to slow the pace down. So legislation would make sense. Not going to be perfect. Think about it a little bit like gun legislation, right? Your goal is you know you're not going to end all gun violence, but your goal to have to have legislation around, say, gun control is you want to minimize the risk and you want to maximize defenses. It's as simple as that, right? As is security 101, so that you could have rules of disclosure, uh, you know, for uh, fake accounts, for bots. You could have rules of disclosure about what standards these social media platforms are using um, in terms of what kind of speech that's allowed. You could have, you know the Honesty Ad Act or something like that in which you actually uh, have to certify who is, in fact, uh, buying this privacy. And then there is a role for, you know, liability, right? Because if you look at the extremism out there, and in particular people of color and women who are faced and, and, and uh, uh, people with diver more diverse backgrounds that are, that are suffering, um, the fact that, these, that there seems to be no responsibility for the kind of activity that is occurring on these social media platforms seems to me ridiculous from a governance perspective. You're starting to see that change. There was actually a woman who just got, uh, at least from a, from a, a website, at least got major uh, money uh, from a court uh, because of the harassment of, uh, of the online platform. So there are a number of solutions. None of them are going to solve the problem, but they will create a narrative in which this stuff can be regulated. And I think in the absence of starting that narrative, our hands um, are thrown up. Can I do one more quickly? Yep which is 2020. Um, so he, if you ask me as a counterterrorism and national security person, what would I do if I were the Russians? How do I, how do I win if I want Trump to win? I suppress 20,000 African-American votes in Michigan and I've won. How do I do this? I don't do it the same way I did it before. I'm going to bring down um, a couple critical infrastructures. I'm going to do fake news that there's an active shooter and maybe one other thing. Um, the, media, the social media platforms have got to get their act together on the use of their platforms to create not fake, well, to create fake news that impacts uh, the ability of people to get to voting, uh, to, to actually do the physical act of voting. And, and, and that's where government can come into play and begin to, you know, state governments um, come into play and to get them to focus, to get that stuff down, because that's what I'm worried about. I mean, what I would do for 2020 is something very similar, but like, you know, I'm not, I'm obviously a computer scientist also, yeah. and like, I don't have a diverse educational background, but we just need more historians. Like, yeah. we, need, we need more like history of science people working in these platforms, because I feel like we're repeating a bunch of lessons just at a very accelerated pace right now. Like when it comes to 2020, it's not like the Russians aren't playing from a playbook they've been using for ever. ever. Yeah. They're just doing it in a very fast way in a new platform and technology. And we're just, for whatever reason, not looking at historical context and figuring out how to come okay, back. Okay, so speaking as a historian of technology yeah. <laughs> and a podcaster who did an episode about how Facebook is one of the biggest threats to democracy. Um, <laughs> Juliet, you were talking about agency. Um, yes. Does it ever come back to the individual? Could you, how, how much of a difference can it make for individuals to stop using Facebook and Twitter or other platforms or 
use them less or use them more wisely? Yeah, I think no, I think there is. I mean, as I said, the um, you know when you, you know, we talk about layered defenses and security. So think about air, airport security, right? We we hate it, but the truth is there's a lot going on there um, that's layered defenses, so that you don't have a, what what we call a single point of failure. Um, that's how we th- we set up physical security um, uh, uh, in the physical world, and I think because we call it technology and cyber and it's fancy people and it's you know whatever, we think that the security on the social Social media and it's different. It's not. It's it's minimizing risk, layer defenses, all the same keywords. So, one one area where I do think that the uh, layer defenses uh, are a part of it is is educating people so that when they see things like. Uh, that looks too good to be true, like, you know, the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. You know, the social media platform has a responsibility, but so do individuals for, uh, you know, recognizing that Popes tend not to do presidential endorsements. Rafi, do you think individuals can make a difference? Oh, obviously individuals can make a difference. However, I want to also say that we shouldn't blame the victim. <laughs> like, I think that, like, like this, a lot of this should fall onto platform providers. A lot of it should fall onto some form of smart regulation around all this. You know, like, we have the smartest people in the world working at ad targeting platforms. Like, why aren't we building better UIs for people to, like, make sense of what's going on, make sense of, like, information they're seeing, so... We've got about five minutes left, and um, if there are any Slido questions, or if there's anybody in the audience who has questions, this is the time. So I see a hand raised right here, sir. Uh, just a simple observation on the question, but looking for response. Many of these activities are not particularly new. Yellow journalism, which p- took us to war at least once, maybe twice. Talk radio, which was endemic in the United States probably still is. Uh, With some trepidation, I will also include churches, which also get into a pseudo-political. It's a very complicated problem, and I don't think people are very educatable. Maybe we can educate ourselves, but that's not what we're talking about. It's a combination of entertainment Mm -hmm. and fact-passing. So I'm, I'm being a little pessimistic. Uh, any comment? I mean, I want to be optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> like we're in, the, optimistic like now. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. I want to believe that people are educatable. I think that, like, if you think about local news, local news sometimes is the most informed about local issues. And, like, we're only seeing, like, what the New York Times covers about it, which is in a very particular lens, whether it be, like, national commentary or, pol- or politics. But if you want the real facts, go talk to that beat reporter who actually went there and spoke to the people on the scene. And, like, the internet provides that ability to connect down at that level and find out everything that's going on. I remember like in one of the elections that was occurring when I was still a graduate student in this building, or this building didn't exist, you know, the next building next door, like we had the debate going on on the screen and there was like, and this was revolutionary at the time, but live fact-checking happening at the moment, like scrolling on one of the columns, you know, in ANSI type or whatever. Um, like the, that's the power of what, like that's like the vision of like how we need to get back to that world. Like we need to be able to connect diverse voices in a way that allow you to have like a real good diet of information going on. And the world we live in right now is not that, but I, I'm optimistic and believe we can get there. And I think there's ways also that social, 
I mean, I'm optimistic too that, that uh, social media platforms can amplify, I know it's like a hated word now, but experts, right? I mean, in other words, think about the anti-vaccine and how, and this is really interesting today. So there's always been a latent anti-vaccine movement, um, but it's actually being pushed by the Russians right now. So the disinformation in health security is being pushed by the Russians because their goal is you want to unify the base um, and you want to disperse uh, uh, the opposition, however Russia is going to define it at that stage. So I, I mean, I, you know, just when we were talking about uh, interest and, and you know, Facebook, most anti-vaxxers get their news from Facebook. Um, most non-anti-vaxxers, right, get their news from their social network, from the real social network, doctors, friends, or whatever. There's ways, why can't we put, why can't we figure out a way in which those experts, not a bad word, people who believe two plus two equals four and not five, can be amplified as well so that we have a common just baseline right that vaccination is good and the plague is bad right I mean, that seems to me to so, be- so to keep things moving along um thanks i'm going to go to a question that's coming in on slido that bottom question how much of the problem with social media would be solved if we could eliminate anonymity <laughs> on the internet i mean I, I i believe that a lot could be fixed i don't think everything would be fixed right i think that like a lot of i mean Anonymity doesn't solve a security issue necessarily, right? So like a lot of what we had to deal with at the Democratic Party was actually like hijacked real accounts that were like built up over time that they were hijacked to then use. So like, again, like there isn't a silver bullet to these things. However, you know, there is a place for like being able to stand up behind your beliefs and sort of talk about it. Like I'll draw just a very quick analogy, like, you know, the caucus system. So like if you go to like an Iowa caucus, right, like everyone has to stand up and argue which candidate you want to support or which or which delegate you want to support or whatever it is that turns off a lot of people from participating, right? Like that's like a hard thing for a lot of people to go do. So like some form of anonymity is actually good. Though like, could you make an argument that like pendulum swinging away from anonymity to like true identity might temporarily fix the problem? Sure, but like, again, like that also isn't how the world really works. So we should try to figure out that, like the right balance of things. One more question, one more. Okay. So I, uh, I don't know if this question makes sense, but I, I listen to a lot of folks who talk about this. It's one of my own interests. And Rafi, I think I hear you saying something that's a little different than what most people are saying. So I hear a lot of talk about you know, regulation in terms of monitoring what's said or viewpoints or things like that. But I think that you are actually bringing out the idea of rejiggering the networks to, to sort of universally make us smarter mm-hmm. instead of just limiting what's being said and so on. And I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, Absolutely. I'd love your take on it yeah. too. But like for me, like the, the situation is that a lot of these networks have, I mean, this is an overused phrase in media these days, but they've made us the product, right? So in a lot of ways. So like as opposed to like making a service that makes humanity better or making society better. And like what we need is sort of like, you know, we need people who are building things in the public interest as opposed to building things that are specifically set up to make a lot of money for these particular corporations. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, this, this, it's not binary. Either the thing is on the platform or it's off the platform, right? It is whether you can set up and, you know, a, a system in which it's, it's slowing it down, right? And so, and I do, I, in my world, you know, New Zealand was like, 
one of these moments where you're like, nothing has been fixed, right? You just cannot believe that that stuff remained online for as long as it did, right? And, and the reason why is because the more people that were watching it from his network, um, then the more that it got played out. So, well, it seems to be, that would seem to be correctable from a technology perspective. Um, and so there are a number of things that you can do to either promote the two plus two equals four people, right? Promote the experts and demote the guys with a gun in a mosque, right? So that's... All right. Well, that was not a total buzzkill. Thank you very much. Can we have a hand Thank for our panelists? Thanks. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. Our theme music is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. All of our other music is from Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. A big thank you to Xconomy and the World Frontiers Forum for letting me share the tape of my conversation with Juliet and Rafi. The World Frontiers Forum is a nonprofit based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that brings together young technology pioneers to tackle sustainable development goals. You can learn more about their work at worldfrontiersforum.org. Soonish is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. As I said at the top of the show, we're thrilled to be joined by Mark Chrysler of The Constant. You can find the latest episode of that show at hubspokeaudio.org, and you can browse the whole archive at Mark's website, constantpodcast.com. I also want to tell you about the latest episode of the Hub & Spoke show, Iconography. Host Charles Gustine wraps up his season-long exploration of the mythology of the pilgrims with a visit to, of course, Plymouth Rock. Now, one new thing I learned from this episode was that, just like the Puritans who allegedly touched down on it, Plymouth Rock is itself a kind of immigrant. It's a big chunk of granite and diorite that formed 630 million years ago as part of the Dedham Formation in what's now central Massachusetts. During the last ice age, it got scraped off by glaciers, and carried to its date with destiny in Plymouth Harbor. Charles reconstructs Plymouth Rock's strange biography, literally piece by piece. I've actually got a cameo voice acting role in the drama, as does Lonely Pellet host Tamar Abishai. And in the Department of Bizarre Coincidences, Charles talks a bit in the episode about the Greek-style portico that was built in 1920 to protect Plymouth Rock. Guess the name of the architect who designed that portico. It was none other than Chesley Bonestell, the space artist I talked about in the previous episode of Soonish. Before Bonestell started painting his hyper-realistic magazine illustrations of spaceships and distant planets, he was an architect, and the Plymouth Rock Portico was one of his most important commissions. You can take an audio journey to Plymouth right now at iconographypodcast.com. Special thanks to my top supporters on Patreon, including Kent Rasmussen, Celia Ramsey, and Paul and Patricia Rausch. Hi, Mom and Dad. Thanks also to Jamie Rausch, Lucia and Warren Prosperi, Victor McElhaney, Andy Hirsina, Steve Morantz, Elizabeth Blanche, Chuck and Gail Mandeville, Ellen Leance, Mark Polofsky, Graham Ramsey, and everyone who pitches in to support the show. You can join this visionary crowd by signing up to make a per-episode donation at whatever level feels comfortable for you. Just go to patreon.com slash soonish. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soonish.